Hello and welcome to Unpleasant Movies, the podcast dedicated to harsh and unrelenting cinema. I'm Svade Ogur. And my name's Thomas Simonsen Barnbra. And today we are discussing the movie Trouble Every Day by Claire Denis from 2001, starring Vincent Gallo as Shane Brown and Tricia Vesey as June Brown, Beatrice Daly as Corey and Alex Discuss as Leo Simonieux, and Florence Loray Kyle as Christelle, and music by Tindersticks and cinematography by Agne Goddard. Yeah, so... Um... Have you seen any films by Claire Denis from before? I have not, actually. Although uh, I did read an interview with her just before Christmas, um, which I found quite illuminating in view of this movie, so mm. I might want to discuss that later. Mm. Mm. How about you? Yeah, yeah, I've seen a few of her films. She had, last year, I think, High Life, which yeah. was um, a science fiction film with... Yeah, with Robert Pattinson. Pattinson. Yeah. And that's perhaps a film that's most similar to this one, which also kind of explores genre a bit. Yeah, that's more science fiction, and this is horror, yeah. erotic thriller. Kind of kind of has a bit of a, a drama, mystery, erotic horror. Yeah. It plays with those genres, though it's it's very her own thing, really. She's, yeah, um, although I read it's been counted as part of the, you know, the new French extremism, along with Sabre, which we discussed earlier. That's true. I think you could put it in that sort of general vibe. Yeah, the term was phrased by a film critic called James Quant, and he wrote a piece where he mentioned this, among others, in terms of new French films, which he found somewhat appalling. Yeah. It wasn't meant in a positive term. No. But, I read that uh, a couple of women fainted during the showing of this during the Cannes Film well, Festival. There's always someone fainting at Cannes. Yeah, some some sensitive, sensitive viewers. Yeah. I find it kind of funny, actually, because I didn't find this movie very extreme at all, uh, in in the sense of sort of blood-curdling, fainting experiences. Like, uh, it does have some very graphic scenes. It becomes very intense, but um, it starts off very lyrical and rhythmic and very observing the camera. The story is about an American couple who have their honeymoon in Paris. Yeah. And newlyweds. Um, but it becomes apparent that the man, Shane Brown, played by Vincent Gallo, he has an alternate motive because he's looking for an old colleague, uh, Leo Semanu. Yeah. This film kind of uh, drips the narrative elements very slowly. You start off without much explained and um, there's a few scenes here and there that start off fill in the exposition a bit. Yeah, it's almost as if it's sort of reluctant to give any exposition. The plot isn't really the point. It kind of, it's more of a framework. And f- from the beginning, we also see Leo and his wife, Cora. She is outside at night in a field and she attracts a man whom she has intercourse with and uh, murders and then possibly also eats. It's very bloody. Leo shows up and kind of cleans up the mess, buries the body and takes care of her. And as it becomes... At this point, we don't know that this is the person that Shane is um, looking for. No, that's not until quite a bit later. And like everything is... You don't really understand a lot of it until midway through the movie or even later. Mm. And what becomes apparent after a while is that Corey has some sort of disease or some ailment. And um, 
Every day, Leo, he works as a general practitioner. He has to lock her inside this big chateau. Yeah, he's a he's a doctor yeah. uh, and uh, previously researcher, medical researcher. Yeah, you, you, you get the impression that he's kind of downgraded his lifestyle a little bit. He's done some research together with Shane back in the day and Cora as well. And something must have gone wrong. And now Cora is ill and she doesn't really speak at all. And she has this kind of feral, sexual, murderous nature. Yeah, she seems quite feral and Mm. unable to function. And he he seems like he wants to contain her for her own good and probably to keep her from harming others, yeah. I would assume. And he's very caring. He kind of washes her and, and looks after her and, and tries to protect her and other people. Well, yeah, he, he, you could say that, but at the same time, he's he seems quite cold. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, well, I find his, his scenes with her is quite touching. Uh, no, I mean, generally, like, what mm. he does seems caring. Mm. I just find the acting kind of stiff, mm. I guess. Actually, this actor, Alex Descartes, worked quite a few times with uh, Claire Denis. Yeah, among others, he's he's worked with her on the 35 shots of rum. The movie, not worked with her on drinking 35 shots of rum, well, I would assume. Well, <laughs> who can say? <laughs> who can say? Anyway, so you kind of get the feeling that there's something wrong with Shane as well. And he may be suffering from the early stages of the same affliction. That's actually apparent from the beginning. It starts off, well, one of the first scenes is mm. uh, them flying into France, Shane and June flying into Paris and um, he has this sort of uh, violent bloody fantasy of June covered in blood Yeah, and, and he locks yeah. himself in the airplane bathroom. Yeah, they have like this intimate moment and he goes into the bathroom and he sees her lying on a bed drenched in blood. Yeah. She's awake though. Yeah. But it, it's kind of a... And the previous scene he sort of, uh, he looks at her arm in a sort of a, mm. like a hungry way. Mm. He's kind of wolfish in this role, uh, Vincent Gallo. Yeah, I find him, I think he's the best uh, performance in this, in my view. It's it's kind of a, I don't know, understated movie. I find it interesting that we're discussing the plot so much at all, because uh, it's really quite, it doesn't seem interested in that, this movie. I think he's probably the, the one who gets the most, you know, uh, takes the most space as an actor in this movie. Mm. Yeah, well, he's the main role. Um, he really looks great, I think, as this kind of somewhat predatory, <laughs> somewhat uh, intense. He looks a bit weird, but he's very striking. He reminds yeah. me a bit of Willem Dafoe. Know what you mean? <laughs> I mean, the face is quite different, but I, I get what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, they, they don't look super similar, but mm. they have quite a similar sort mm. of air about them. He has this double-sidedness about him that he's there's something quite frightening about him. At the same time, he's quite, you know, he has this these more intimate scenes with his wife. It feels tender, but also a bit almost unpredictable. Yeah, to me it seems a bit like he's trying to control his negative urges mm. to, like, violence. and Because he seems like he's being sort of eaten by the same demons as uh, Corey. Mm. Uh, he seems to struggle with the same issues, but he hasn't given in to it yet. It's a bit unclear what it is. But it seems connected with violent urges and the urge to eat flesh or blood. Well, the film presents it as kind of a medically induced um, vampirism. Or yeah, it's like never, a disease. It's never explained, but... Uh, not, not explicitly. It no. kind of hints towards that, yeah. that, that Shane and Leo have a, 
a background working together. Shane for a big medical company, acquiring Leo's expertise. expertise yeah. yeah. And doing some kind of dodgy research on human subjects. Yeah. And apparently um, stole Leo's research. Mm. Early in the film, you can see June's arm. There's a bite mark. Yeah, yeah. And Shane at one point says, you know, I would never hurt you. And I really get the feeling that he's kind of in an intimate moment, just lost it a little bit. Yeah. And then became really frightened and drew back and understood that, okay, I have to get in touch with uh, Leo and see if there's something I can do about this growing ailment. Yeah. Without really going into horror territory, he plays a lot with uh, imagery and kind of, um, there's something kind of a bit uh, vampire-like, but also has a bit of a maybe feral uh, werewolf Stuff. Yeah, maybe something a bit like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde too, like some some sort of suppressing uh, some evil nature. Yeah, Although but more I'm, sexual though in this case. Yeah, it's case. sexual. It's, yeah. And the research, it's also connected with the libido in some sense. Mm. Um, and you can connect it also with Frankenstein perhaps, like science creating monstrous uh, effects. Yeah. Uh, there's a scene where they're at, they're at the uh, Notre Dame and he kind of plays a bit. He puts his arm up like the James Whale Frankenstein. Yeah, pretends to be a monster. Yeah. And there's these shots of gargoyles. And it's yeah. quite obvious that you're meant to sort of connect this with, with the yeah. monsters. And, and it, you know, he makes this face and he almost has like a... Demonic his, energy. His, um, his coat has almost like a count kind of... Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, but I got to say, like, just discussing the story, it's, it's a really muddled story, I think. And it's quite unclear oh. and... and well, I wouldn't say muddled. I mean, it, it's in the background and it drops it a little bit here and there, but the ex- it's not very interested in the exposition. It's much no. more about the emotion and the like, the bodies, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's... Claire Denis is, is clearly more interested in that. There's a quote from her in this uh, article I read. I'm just loosely translating here, but she had a lecture in Oslo. She said she likes to stand quite close to the camera... By following the movements, she gets a totally different feeling of the pictures that's being captured than if she'd stood a couple of meters away and watched it via monitor. When the camera dwells at a face or a bodily detail, which it often does in our movies, it's as if it breathes and watches in the same way as the sort of rootless and marginalized uh, main characters uh, of her. Intimate situations and moments are prioritized over dialogue and action. Mm. And um, as we mentioned, she works with Agnes Goddard. They have a long-standing relationship. And um, in this film, there are, there are a lot of close-ups. And uh, she said something akin to that she wanted to be so close to the actors so that she could almost touch them. Yeah. You get that feeling that it's it's very intimate in a way. Yeah, it is very intimate. And uh, apparently she, in general, she doesn't spend a lot of budget on the shoots in themselves and they're often quite quick but she does spend yeah. a lot of time editing yeah and that's sort of where she does find meaning mm. and contextualization for her shots i gotta say though i think the story in this movie is kind of weak <laughs> like i would imagine trying to pitch this story to someone and i would have a hard time doing it there's a lot of characters and it's quite unclear like obviously there's an intent to be unclear here but uh, I read a lot of reviews and, and articles about this movie. And in general, this seems to be a sort of a... There's two camps. Uh, and one of them is mainly that... And I hate using the word, but it's quite a pretentious movie. There's not necessarily a lot of meat there. Like, I don't really manage to identify myself with any of the characters. There's not really a lot of 
character backstory. Like, it's very observing in a way that somber is to the Philippe Grandrier movie. And in a lot of the same ways, I don't find that very engaging. I find it quite superficial. And there's some gory scenes there, like there's some violent sexual scenes in Somme. There are some really gory cannibalistic scenes here and some rape scenes. But I don't feel they give me anything. It feels quite superficial. Like, I don't really understand what this movie is trying to tell me. Like, there's some observations about, I don't know, sexuality and relationships. and, and um, But I don't know. I, I find it found it quite uh, yeah difficult to to put my finger on what this movie wants to do. Well, I mean, in terms of the, the journalism around them, when it came out initially, there was a fair bit of negative journalism. So I've read a few of these American articles. They're quite, they're what they say, that there's no dialogue, there's not much to understand, there's not much psychology. But the film's had a reprisal since then. And for my money, I think it's actually very strong. Although the plot isn't... It's not really the focus of it. You know, it's not really a, a character study or a psychological play of relationships. I think there's a lot of things that you can talk about. That There's a lot of depth and a lot of themes that are quite interesting. Well, I think it aspires to have a lot of depth or it wants to, it seems like it wants to have a lot well, of depth. It's a film that allows you to interpret it in a lot of different ways, I think. For example, you can look at it from a feministic perspective. Cora being shut in the house by Leo as a way of controlling her sexuality that's dangerous versus Shane who has the same sort of ailment but doesn't get controlled. That's one way to approach it. I think there are quite a few different ways. Well, yeah, but what I was speaking about earlier, like the reviews and stuff, I wasn't talking about how it was received at the time. I've mainly focused on reading more contemporary appraisals of the movie, and it's still quite a mixed bag. And I got to say, I, I, I feel a lot of the points that critics of this movie take up, I do agree quite strongly with. I mean, for me, the main problem with the movie isn't really the themes or that it's lacking a good story. It's that it's just very boring and unengaging oh, I'm for surprised me. you say that, actually. I don't really find it boring at all. I find it really quite engaging. Even though it's a film that doesn't have much in the way of dialogue and it's always engaging me with the scenes and the things that are happening quite slowly dripping out situations and, like I said earlier, it kind of has a bit of a mystery to it. What the relationships are and where it's going. It's interesting that you say that because I, I watched the movie and I was just, um, I mean, I was trying to be engaging with it, but I found it incredibly unengaging and I found in general the acting very stiff and wooden. It's a bit expressive though. I mean, you have Vincent Gallo, who's he's kind of this wolfish predatory. Yeah, and then sort you of have an exception uh, to the rule of the wooden and, acting in and this you movie. have um, Beatrice Dahl, who is this feral, wordless, intense more or less only in one mode, but she has a very strong presence, I think. And Trisha Vesey, who plays June Brown, she's a pixie-ish, almost like a new wave French beauty, although, I mean, she's an American actress, but they're all very distinct. Yeah, but what you're talking about now is mostly like pretty superficial visual stuff. Like the dialogue doesn't well, really delve into these things. Well, well there's not much dialogue at all. No. And a lot of the acting has to do with the body language itself. If you just look at how the people move themselves and how they relate physically, I, I wouldn't say the acting is bad at all, really. I quite like it myself. I wouldn't so. say it's bad, but I, I would say it's unnecessarily understated. Is what I would say it okay. is. You find it unapproachable? Not unapproachable, but it seems to be this willful obtuseness that I, often I find problematic with a lot of art movies. 
My perspective on something like that is if you're used to plot-driven narrative films where the dialogue carries a lot, there's a good chance you will find this kind of difficult. This does follow a tradition of films just observing a lot. It doesn't explicitly tell you many things, but it kind of implies a lot of things. So you, you're allowed to put in different interpretations. Certainly, you know. certainly. But that's not really the issue I have with this movie because, for instance, I loved uh, The Free Will. Which but that's, that does have more of a plot and a much more psychology and a lot more character interaction. Well, it's, it's a very, very different type of movie. Well, it's very right? observant and doesn't have a lot of dialogue. I would say those are two extremely well, big commonalities. But they're not really similar at all, actually. Well, I mean, yeah, you Stylistically say... Stylistically and the intentions of the director come from very different points of yeah, view. Yeah, but I'm talking about dialogue now. And uh, in The Free Will, there's not a lot of dialogue. So in that way, dialogue isn't what's weak in this movie. Isn't that the lack of dialogue? I really love a good movie that doesn't have a lot of dialogue, but you need other strong points. Yeah, well, I think this does have a lot of other strong points, though. I guess we'll agree to disagree, mm. because I, I found it... Like, there are certain shots that are really bad, like... When he's talking to one of the researchers, there's like a point where you can see the boom mic and stuff. It's all really, like some of the scenes feel really amateurish. Although I will say it does have a lot of beautiful shots. Yeah, I think it looks really nice, actually. I think it's a bit of a mixed bag, but there are good things about the movie. Particularly the scenes with Shane, I think work quite well. I'm not sure. I think, well, it's difficult to put my finger on because the sort of process of Claire Denis and how she works makes it a bit sort of ethereal and sort of freeform. I wouldn't say freeform, but it's a very sensual language. She's kind of mixing up danger and desire. She's very concerned with the human body. Like yeah. I was talking about before, like the body language of the actors is, is very central. Yeah. And she spends a lot of time with a camera looking at the body, yeah. often as something strange, like a landscape of skin and hair. I remember we talked about this uh, when we talked about the sombre, Philippe Grandrieu, how it sort of objectifies the body in a way that makes it unhuman. And I think Claire Denis does a lot of the same things. Although I, I would say she's more successful in her ability to make it, I don't know, I find this movie like more erotic than sombre, for instance, which I found, I don't know if it tried to be very erotic, but I found it, found it quite... Mm, sterile in a way that I don't think Sombra is much more aggressive and dark and cold and inaccessible yeah much more inaccessible because in in this movie even the bad characters do seem to have some sort of redemptive traits like Shane is clearly not just an evil person he does seem to have some warm feelings towards his wife oh yeah I guess the way I read the film is that both Cora and Shane they, they have a affliction that's kind of burning away their personality. And Cora is much more further along. And Shane's recognising that he's soon to be uncontrollable and is struggling with that. Yeah. While she's so far along that she's just a beast, she'll bite your head off. Yeah. Actually. And I guess you could read multiple things into that, like you said, because you could view it as a psychological thing or you could view it as a relationship thing or you could view it as in this movie, like an actual bacteria or a, like a physical ailment. Uh, so there are multiple levels well, of reading it. She doesn't explicitly say how to read it. But I think there are some elements that, at least for me, naturally come up, like the ideas of a human animal and yeah. the sides of sexuality which are connected with the abject, like the repulsive and dangerous and destructive sides. Things to do with pain and aggressiveness and dominance are connected to things like pleasure and enjoyment and love 
in a way that's ambivalent. Yeah. And in this film, it kind of connects them very directly uh, as in terms of losing control and becoming something else. Yeah, I would also say humanity, like you mentioned mm. Frankenstein, and I think that's a very apt connection. And I would also say the island of Dr. Moreau, like the interplay between humanity and the animalistic and uh, what it means to be human in the face of the feral. Mm. But I don't know. I feel like the movie, in some ways, it appealed to me. I never wanted to turn it off or anything, but it didn't grab me in a way I think it could have done if Claire Denis had, I don't know, made some summer concessions to, how would I put this, make me care more about the characters, basically. Yeah. There's a nice quote, I think, uh, from Andrew O'Hare, where he says, watching trouble every day, at least if you don't know what's coming is like biting into what looks like a juicy, delicious plum on a hot summer day and coming away with your mouth full of rotten pulp and living worms. <laughs> That's a nice quote. But uh, I don't know, the foreshadowing of the bloody scene on the airplane, it doesn't seem to me like a tasty, ripe plum. <laughs> yeah, but there's a lot of beautiful cinematography. And oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of... But the Sensuous and, and dwelling on beautiful skies and it turns... Very intense and horrible towards the end. Yeah, but I, I would say the rottenness is always there. There's something very melancholy about it as well. Oh yeah, um, it does feel like a very melancholy movie. Particularly with the music by Tinder Sticks. She's worked over many years with them as well. And Stuart Staples, as far as I understand, is often involved in quite early stages. And she said, in terms of the music, and this is a quote by Claire Denis, Music is a medium that puts body and space in relation. Music authorizes the body to exist in space. That's perhaps why the body appears central to my films. Because for me, the expression of a character is described by the way he or she moves, exists. You can almost read more from the body movement than from speech. That's perhaps one of the things that you're not gelling with. As a musician, I found that very nonsensical. I don't really understand what she's talking about. What does she mean by body? And it seems a bit abstract to me. Well, think about how you use music in films. Yeah. In many ways, you are working with emotional scapes or constructing moods or landscapes or themes. It's, it's different than... I'm not to say I'm not really a musician, but... Uh, <laughs> well, you don't have to I, be I mean, a musician I, to talk about music, of course, but... I feel like I can understand quite clearly what she means in terms of space. Not physical space, space in time and space in emotion. Yeah, I mean, it does seem like a core belief of her. Uh, she talks about in the interview I was talking about, about like story versus maybe a lack of story. And also, I guess it would apply to music as well, that... Movies don't necessarily need a story to be good and often telling a story might be better in a book is a direct quote from her. But in a movie, you can create an unsaid emotion, something you understand without words. So I think that's, I don't quite understand it or her views on music, for instance, but I do think it's central to her core beliefs. Well, she's very concerned with sounds and textures and, you know, the colors of things. It's a very felt place much more connected to what you observe and what you feel, what you interact with rather than narrative or storytelling per se. Yeah, 
And I would also say that the music in this movie is one of the strong points to me. I really like the music. Mm. There are these, um, it's often quite quiet and often there are long passages without music and then you'll have these sort of quiet uh, harp or something, arpeggios, sort of ringing out. And uh, sometimes you'll have a bit more intense music, but it, I think it works really well. And the, the movie also starts with a, mm. with a song and vocals actually singing the title to this movie. Mm. Which I gotta say, I don't quite know what to read into the title of this movie. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, apparently she's very careful about choosing the titles of her films. As far as I understand, they're meant to make you think about what you've seen, to rethink the imagery, or using it as a lens to understand the film. So as far as I know, she hasn't been explicit what this refers to. Some people have suggested that the title is taken from... Frank Zappa song called Trouble Every Day yeah. from the album Freak Out. Although I haven't seen this explicitly true, but... That's the Mothers is, of Invention yeah, period. That's right. right. And um, looking at the song, which isn't featured in the film, and it's not the same song that uh, Stuart Staples sings, but it is a song that kind of resonates in some ways, at least. It's one of these Zappa songs where there's kind of like a narrative where he's talking through, and there's, you know, music in the background... It has a lot of themes that doesn't have anything to do with this film, like watching television and uh, racism and, you know, society going down the dumps. But there's a phrase, or the verse, he says, no way to delay that trouble coming every day, which kind of resonates with the situation that Shane is in, at least. Yeah, he does seem to struggle every day with this mm. ailment, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. yeah, I would find in general that I find Claire Denise a bit unapproachable because uh, in, in this interview in, with uh, Morgan Blada, which is a Norwegian newspaper interviewed by Elise Divig, she seemed just very hostile in the interview. She, she didn't want to discuss any of the themes that the interviewer wanted to discuss, which was like being a female movie maker and stuff. Like she didn't even want to use that term. She, didn't, she says, mm. I don't understand that term. And she's discussed the, the Harvey Weinstein issues mm -hmm. and she said that's not really an issue. She doesn't even think about that as yeah. big problems. And she, she seems very abrasive and hard to get along with and hard to discuss with. And, I, I uh, think it's different in different interviews. It's useful to contextualize a little bit, I think, in terms of being a female director. Because this is a theme that's come up several times. In some sense, she's like the classical auteur. You know, she writes a lot of her movies. She has a lot of the same collaborators. But she doesn't really think of herself in those terms. She typically frames her process much more collaborative in terms of making choices. And interviews that I've seen, she kind of distances herself from the um, term auteur and the question of being male or female as a director is something I don't think she vocalizes or relates to much. It's more, more she has her own process of making films and she doesn't look at it in terms of gender. Although I would say that her films very clearly are gendered and there's many interesting things about her approach that is different from a lot of people who make films who are male. Sadly, in terms of the Me Too movement, there's a lot of like French people, women and men, who just... They say really ridiculous things as far as I'm concerned. And um, some of it, I think, is actually my interpretation is that there's some Anglophobia. <laughs> there's a cultural thing where you 
distinctly see yourself as as not a part of the the same kind of discourse as the American or the English. Um, And, you know, they have had, they kind of had their own movement, but they call it something else. I can't remember what it was. Uh, But there's a lot of these older actresses and filmmakers that, you know, their views on gender. Seems completely out of touch. You know, if, if it had been racism. Yeah. If they'd saying like, uh, you know, uh, there's no problem with black people here, that's absolutely fine. No one would have accepted it. No. But, you know, gender roles on the continent, they're, they're kind of different and they have different ideas about it. So they seem less willing to apply a lot of the um, feminist ideals. Yeah, they don't seem willing to engage with it anyway. But mm. speaking of uh, her, her uh, being reluctant to to even discuss herself as a female movie maker. Mm. I don't think that's a negative trait at all. I, I, I can't sort of understand what she means because you want to be more than, than your gender. Like you're a person mm. and you're a movie maker. Yeah. But I just found it in, in this context of her being incredibly hostile. In this interview anyway, mm. I mean, anybody can have a bad day and do a, a hostile interview. But It's also a, probably a question she's been asked a lot. Yeah. You have to remember she's one of the most well-known female directors of her time. Definitely. Um, she seems to me to be similar to David Lynch, very reluctant in terms of talking about her films explicitly and what yep. they mean and how to read them. Their films aren't similar really at all. No. But um, in the sense that they are open for interpretation and reading, there are a lot of similarities going on. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you said that she's reluctant to view herself as an auteur, which I find interesting because she definitely acts like an auteur. <laughs> uh, what do you mean? Like... Difficult personality, difficult to get along with. I would say those are traits of auteurs, well, like Alfred not Hitchcock. Necessarily. And, uh, I mean, I don't know what these people are like in their own ordinary lives. Certainly, they like to have control of what they make, but I don't find it difficult. Slightly megalomaniacal. I mean, you have like the image of Stanley Kubrick, for example, who is this extremely controlling person. But I think there are a lot of like auteur filmmakers that are pretty ordinary in their own, you know, life. Well, yeah, but I would just, I wasn't really making a serious observation. Mm-hmm. I was just making yeah. a, um, a more general observation that a lot of auteurs are pretty weird characters okay. that are well, difficult to get along with. I don't know if that's true. And I, I certainly don't know. Like, n- like name offhand, at least a handful that are very famous that are like that. So, Yeah, of course, you see them through the lens of media. I mean, <laughs> it's a complicated relationship. Being so there. you would say Alfred Hitchcock was easy to get along with for the main stars of his movies, or Ingmar Bergman, or uh, I think Stanley Ingmar Bergman Kubrick. was a very, uh, a, a, probably very sociable and uh, interesting person who you could talk a lot to. Well, I was mainly making an observation that a lot of auteurs seem like very uh, complex personalities. Yeah, right. Some of them, sure, but uh, you know, the people—they're just people. Yeah, we're all people. <laughs> I think they're very different. I'm not sure that I apply like a generalization like that myself. Well, sure. <laughs> okay. One of the things I like about this film also is the many ways in which it invokes horror cinema without explicitly being horror. In terms of imagery, for example, there's this scene with Cora. She's uh, just had sex with a young man who's, who's kind of broken into her home and they have sexual intercourse, which is, you know, it's quite sensual, but it's not very erotic the way I read it. And it becomes very intense as she starts to bite him and uh, tear him to bits. Yeah, she bites his tag out. It's not very erotic. It's horrible, really. Yeah, it becomes very intense, I think. And the sounds also are very uh, strong in that sense. And and after she's done that, she's covered in blood and she walks down a stairwell. 
And that shot just looks a lot like something out of Nosferatu or Bram Stoker's Dracula. I was a carry was the connection I got. But yeah, it, it was some real classic horror imagery with all the blood and staining the walls and stuff. But it's not really a horror movie at all. No, no. It, it plays uses, with a lot of horror it, ideas. Yeah, it uses a lot of imagery. There's also a scene later on with um, Shane after he's um, confronted Corey and started to lose himself a bit. He has a situation with the maid. And there's been like a tension between them from the beginning of the film. Even as they arrive, June and Shane, they're sort of really eager and intimate and kind of ready to make out. The maid's in the room at the same time and uh, there's just tension that's there. Yeah, there's shots of the maid throughout the movie Mm. and also shots of Shane uh, Mm. watching her through the hotel Mm. window and stuff. So there's clearly some sort of attraction there. Yeah, yeah, and she's attracted to him very clearly. Women in the film, they have their own, you know, they're allowed to be lustful and they're allowed to be, you know, ugly. Yeah. which is something I appreciate. They're very much their own characters. And anyway, so towards the end of the film, he approaches her in the locker room and it starts out as a, like an intimate sexual thing. Yeah, she's sort of reciprocate his it's feelings just, initially. Yeah, she's very into it. And then you can't quite see what he's doing, but her, her moans start becoming more painful shrieks. And obviously he starts to bite her and there's this um, revealing shot when his face comes up from between her crotch and his face is blooded and he's really monstrous. And that looks a lot like a shot from a vampire film where the vampire has bitten the neck and he looks up. The composition is quite similar. Only in this case, it's really terrifying. And she's, you know, her screams are very convincing. She sounds as if she's been hurt properly and she's been hitting him helplessly. That change of the mood is very striking and very intense and, and uh, hurtful. I would say it's quite good, uh, the screaming and the and the change in mood. But it also mirrors the earlier scene with Corey and the intruder mm. because his screams are also sort of horrific and yeah. quite ugly and, mm. and quite something you rarely hear in a movie. So I thought that was pretty good. Mm. There's another quote I'd like to... Um, this guy called uh, Mark Chapman who wrote quite an interesting analysis of the film, I thought for bright lights and he's talking about how like the character of the, the vampire has uh, lost its edge over time because it's become a very familiar thing the stories and the actions of a vampire they're tropes so you're not really shocked or surprised in the way that perhaps you could imagine there would have been pre-contemporary era before the dracula book and that's indeed stuff. Uh, which makes it interesting that she's chosen to work with the robert pattison of twilight fame. <laughs> yeah that's true Sort of the diametrically opposite vampire. And in this um, article, he's he's talking about the uncanny experience of the vampire as something that's unclear and brutal. He says by removing like a lot of the religious imagery around them and a lot of the like the fangs and those clear signifiers, she kind of reinvigorates the dangerous and kind of the unrecognizable, the unpredictable The grotesque. Yeah. The vampiric element is quite cannibalistic in this sense because it's not just sucking blood, it's also biting and eating and there's a ferocious, lustful carnage. There's bathing in blood. There's blood up against the walls. There's some very intensity about the... um, destruction of the body or the uh, the tearing of the body yeah i think it's it's not specifically a vampire movie but i think it's a lot truer to the folkloric hmm. idea of vampirism which was a more nebulous thing than 
you know, in contemporary times, it's become this extremely tropey thing with, mm. you know, the fangs and sucking blood and capes and whatnot. But back in the day, in pre-modern times, you know, these things were real fears people had. And it was a lot more fear of the unknown. Yeah. Which is what this movie sort of portrays a lot better in that way, because you don't really know what's going on. It's just this horrible, feral, violent urge. And a lot of, you know, these monster tropes we have today, I think they were much more unclear, like whether it being a werewolf or a vampire. These things were much more mixed and much more unknowable. In oh, a yeah. Sense. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like we like to categorize things mm. so well now. Mm. But back in the day, even just going back to Shakespeare's time in England, you have so many ways of just spelling a name. So you can <laughs> just picture how, how different and how many iterations uh, different folkloric elements would take depending on the teller, depending on the mood, depending on the people's experiences and mm. so forth. The tropey and sort of two-dimensional way we often portray them now, and of course we do now in a, in a sort of postmodern sense also play with those elements, mm. but it does seem to take away a lot of the, I don't know, the integrity of these tales and these fears that people used to have. Yeah, they're very different. Folklore kind of has a dangerous and unapproachable quality outside of knowledge, it's it is. very fascinating, I think. And the minute you start really categorizing it and nailing it down mm. and giving it, you know, these external, very concrete descriptors, mm. it loses a lot of its power. And um, and I think that's sort of sad. And I, I like, I do like that aspect of this movie, the sort of unknowable horrificness of, of these monsters. And of course, coupling it with the sort of horror imagery and the sort of um, the gargoyles and, and monster scene. And there's a lot of thematic elements there that I can appreciate. Yeah, and another way, I mean, I keep referring to it as a vampire movie. It's, as you said, it's not explicitly. And, you know, they, they don't need blood to survive. It's something they desire and something they're willing to kill to get. It, it seems more a lot like more, an urge. Yeah, it seems a lot more sexual in this context. Mm. And, you know, the at least the Dracula story originally is a lot about sex. It's yeah. a lot about foreigners from Eastern Europe coming to our country and magically hypnotizing our women and yeah. corrupting them and turning them into themselves. Uh, it has a lot of those themes. Not always so explicitly communicated in modern versions of Dracula. Yeah, there's a lot of exoticism and sort of sensualism and eroticism about that story. And I think this movie is quite interested in the sexual aspect of it. Mm. And it is described as a neurotic horror movie. I don't find it particularly erotic or particular no. horror, but but it's no. definitely dealing with a lot of erotic themes and horror themes. Yeah, it's more sensual than erotic, really, yeah. I think. And it's not really arousing at all. It's but I would say sensual in, in, in a broader sense, mm. because it's also... Just the texture and the sound yeah. and the visual is also central. It's like the lyrical and rhythmic style of the film, the, the observant gaze, which is kind of soft and interested. Yeah. And the use of sound, which is, you know, kind of melancholic, kind of tender. Yeah, the sound works really well. Like I said earlier, my criticism mm. is just I wish I wish I could relate more to the characters, mm. not necessarily by dialogue, just, just mm. by maybe implying more backstory or... There is some implied, and there is there is some substance there. I just find it yeah. A bit there's shallow. a couple of scenes that are expository. And there's this um, flashback where Shane is talking to an older female colleague. They're kind of explaining more or less the framework for the film. Yeah. And interestingly, in that scene, it ends with kind of like a, a subtle flicker of yellow and white. I'm not sure if you noticed it, but like the celluloid burning or tearing. Yeah. yeah. 
again, it's a surface thing about the film medium, which again has a, a quality. It has a textural quality to it. Like, yeah. It does feel very... This is the only point she does that. And it's the thing that most clearly makes it a memory in a sense, because a lot of these scenes, they're disjointed. He's talking to a French woman, so it's probably in France. Yeah. Whether or not it's at this point or later, it's, it's difficult to pass. Yeah, yeah. That makes me think it's a memory because they're talking about the past and they've been working together and there's no other scenes with this woman. So. No. Um, Another scene that I find quite difficult to mm. place in some sort of context of the movie is actually the initial very first scene, which is just a couple kissing. Who are they? Like I watched it a couple of times and I couldn't quite figure oh, yeah. out who they were. Almost seems like this sort of platonic ideal of a couple. It's just a couple kissing. But you see this hand moving in, like it's sort of threatening. You know, it kind of looks a bit like um, this painting by Edward Munch, The Vampire. Yeah. Kind of a similar composition where there's an embrace that's kind of threatening in a way. There are other like artistic elements that I almost think are on purpose. There's a scene towards the end where Shane tries to have sex with June and he grabs her thigh in a way that's incredibly reminiscent of Gian Lorenzo Bernini's The Rape of Proserpina, in which he has beautifully rendered in marble this male hand grabbing this female thigh. And it's in the context of a rape, Pluto dragging her to the underworld, I believe. But it's just an incredibly striking visual element. And that sex scene is incredibly reminiscent of it, mm. which I liked. Yeah, yeah. Because he does several times frame things look a lot like paintings of references to films yeah um, but it's interesting that scene ends with him jerking off because he can't seem to yeah he runs away and jerks it's off not the violent bathroom. enough for him or so that's how i throw i wasn't sure how to read it really but she becomes very sad yeah well i saw it in the context of in the airplane bathroom scene mm. where sort of pictures her covered in blood yeah. i read it as like he doesn't want to hurt yeah. her mm. and that's when he goes mm. out and kills this maid because mm. he's holding back yeah He's afraid that if he becomes intimate with her, then his beast is released and he'll, you know, start to eat her. Right. And then he goes back and the ending scene I thought was quite brilliant, actually, mm. where he showers off the blood mm. after killing this maid. Mm. And June comes in and there's almost no blood left. And yeah, they embrace. <laughs> yeah. And Shane says, let's go home. Yeah. And she looks towards something. It's unclear yeah, whether or not she sees the blood or not. Yeah, there might be some blood splatter. Yeah. And he seems to have calmed down a bit. Yeah. Because he's been distant last half of the film where he's mostly been looking for yeah. Leo and Corey and um, their time spent in Paris. There's not spending a lot of time together. <laughs> no. Uh, quite separate. And at this point, they're kind of meeting up again. And he's bought a puppy and stuff. Yeah. You mentioned that, but it's sort of weird. Mm. It's like he wants to make up for all the time looking for Leo. Yeah. But then he kills his maid and, and then he feels better. Yeah. So... Yeah. I don't imagine that's the last time he'll feel those urges. I think there's probably an unhappy ending to yeah. this. Um, I mentioned a feminist perspective on this film in terms of Cora being locked up, uh, her sexuality controlled by a man versus him being a free agent. The one reason I don't particularly agree with that specific reading is that I place them different in time, but Shane will end up the same way as Cora. Yeah. But he's not as far along in the disease. Yeah, I agree, because it seems inevitable that at some point he will go as feral mm. as Corey. Mm. And 
if you read it like that, then that sort of feminist uh, interpretation becomes sort of muddled and doesn't quite work as well. But there is some interesting connotations to it, though, I think. I mean, in terms of how situates sexuality and control and dominance. And I think it resonates with the film, but I'm not sure if it's like um, a complete picture. No, it's definitely not like the answer. No, no. <laughs> but yeah. There's this some doesn't really have an answer. <laughs> no, no, no. It has a lot of potential uh, interpretations. Yeah. Uh, but there are there is some resonance there, if you're willing to mm. to view it sort of like that. But there are some interesting themes going through it. Um, I don't think always the movie is able to sort of bring those themes to its full fruition. But well, it's not so concerned about whether or not you pick up on them. I think no, 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 absolutely not. It's very much in its own gear. Yeah, and I guess that could make people feel a bit impatient or bored. It gels well with me, though. Yeah, I think it's not a movie for everyone. Like I, no. I mentioned earlier, the sort of willful obtuseness of the movie, which doesn't generally appeal to me. Uh, I'm, unless, I'm not unless... sure that's fair, though. I wouldn't say willfully obtuse. It's not as if it's made to be difficult. That's not how I read it, anyway. Well, I feel that's more sort that of it's... how I felt watching it. I'm not mm. sure if that's the intent, mm. but it was definitely my feeling watching it. So I wouldn't call it... Um, I wouldn't say that's incorrect for me. Well, you know, I think there's a, a cultural difference between, let's say, a lot of contemporary cinema, which has an intention towards its spectator, which is very clear and obvious, Yeah. where it's open towards you, may have ambivalent elements, but even like David Lynch is very clearly concerned about you as a spectator. Whereas this has kind of a different perspective. It relates differently to you as a spectator. Whether or not you pick up on things, it's kind of your own responsibility. I would say David Lynch definitely does a lot of that. In Mulholland Drive, for mm, instance, mm. I would say there's a couple of clear instances of him being willfully obtuse. I think that's one of David Lynch's appeal, actually, that he refuses to dumb it down, like the revamp of the Twin Peaks series. He yeah. refused to do some sort mm. of fan service. He definitely followed his own but inner that, vision. That's not quite what I meant. Certainly he can be difficult to read but he always it's like if you imagine that he's talking directly at you whether or not you understand his words but she's not necessarily looking right at you the way she approaches you as a filmmaker is just substantially different i think well you're sort of um putting words in their mouth i think i'm just talking about from watching the movies not, a, no, not about their intent necessarily i'm talking about what the movie does oh, i wasn't st- talking about their intent i was i was talking about their approach to the concept of a spectator. Yeah, but you're sort of picturing that the director isn't looking at you. <laughs> okay, so I, mean, I was trying to <laughs> illustrate a difference in culture in terms of how you... Um... Yeah, I, th- I do think I see what you're getting at because there is a sort of Europeanness to it that's quite different from the... Like, you mentioned David Lynch and it is quite different from that. I mean, but... David Lynch is very clearly an American filmmaker. Yeah. Extremely American his, his, his language and his approach, although, as you say, I mean, he's a surrealist, he works with... Yeah, and sometimes he, he's being extremely uh, obtuse or, or esoteric on purpose because he likes being in that sort of general area, it seems like, from his movies. Did you watch that short movie he did with the talking monkey? Not yet, but I'm looking forward to it. It's quite interesting. That's yeah. a g- good example of him refusing to being simple or giving a straight narrative or anything. It's just him having fun and playing with the media. And it was, he, he always constructs these worlds, though, these kind of complex, these kind of uh, rich and um, 
they're difficult to pass, they're difficult to see, and there's a lot of like symbolism and a lot of like um, a subtext that's clearly there, but not. Yeah, um, in this particular short movie, yeah. what Jack knew or something, I think he's called. Mm. Um, it's just very playful and exuberant, and just him playing with, with what you know and don't know, and being surreal for the sense of being surreal because mm. it's funny, mm. and talking animals and stuff. I don't get quite the same level of playfulness from no. Claire Denis. Oh, she's no, so, she's, she's very, very serious. There's not a lot of humor in. There's it. no humor in this movie. Not that I can recall a single humorous no. moment no. actually. Which does make the movie feel maybe maybe to me that makes it feel a bit more dreary to watch because mm. there's not these light. It's much more melancholy in a way. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You it mentioned the melancholy, of, and I totally agree. It's very and there's melancholy. Something of the like the mystery or the romance. Those elements are. It's in a different sheen. Yeah, but none of her films are that I've seen. No. funny as far as I can remember. She's not a great humorist, maybe. Maybe the joke's on us. You should give High Life a chance, though. Yeah. You might like it. It sounds interesting. I'd be willing to watch that. In many ways, it's much more contemporary, stylized film. It has also these elements that are quite obtuse, but... um, But it is a more contemporary movie, too. It's a more more approachable film. Yeah. Actually, I find Trouble Every Day to be also one of her more approachable films. Yeah. Perhaps because she uses, like, genre elements to explore. Yeah. uh, I wouldn't say it's unapproachable in the sense that I... Like, it's shot quite, like, the shots are built quite well and stuff. I would say the story is a bit sort of unnecessarily complicated. But it's not complicated, though. It's not as if there's many layers of complication. Essentially, it's quite a small part of the film, and it's quite simple. Well, I disagree. <laughs> I thought it was pretty complicated, like, with all the different characters and, and well, the uncertainty. Well, there's four characters, and they have a prehistory of some medical experiments gone wrong... And now he's searching for them because something's gone wrong. Yeah, it's not that there's too many characters. It's that the characters are sort of uh, difficult to place in the story initially, anyway, at the first viewing. And the general structure of it, like, it's not something I've really read or heard before. It's kind of. So it's not so easy to recognize. Yeah, well, it doesn't start out with telling stories so much is showing situations well again then, she does she's not really interested in telling stories no. so much as being a more yeah. central like really doing movie making as a sort of central uh, you don't really understand experience. the situations until later yeah but i, I feel like the, that kind of removes the focus from the plot and that allows you to look in a different way at the film because you're not looking for the night or at least i'm not looking for like the narrative beats or the characters in terms of let's say, psychology or relationships so much. No, but what are you looking for, though? I'm looking at the situations. Yeah. And I'm looking at the language, kind of the rhythm and the feel of the film, the touch and the smell, yeah. those kind of elements, the presence of the character. Yeah, yeah. I would say the, the lack of the sort of exposition and story elements, uh, explicit story elements, do lend a sort of immediacy to a lot of the scenes because you're not constantly thinking about it or you, you don't really have access to it. So you sort of have to parse what's going on in each individual scene. And it, there is a quality there, I do think. But In some ways it becomes more unpredictable as well because it, it doesn't really pass out very clearly where it's going to go. Like most films you watch, you can tell the narrative has a very concise framework one way or the other. But still, there is a, quite a concise story there. Like yeah. when you've yeah. watched the movie, I just, I, I think you could get away with having even less story. I mean, if that was not really something you were interested in. 
and more interesting shots actually. But it's not. There are a lot of interesting shots, but there are also some that I find kind of not as interesting. Well, on the whole, I, I think it's quite a beautiful. The images I remember, at least, are quite striking. There's a lot of like intense and uh, and beautiful imagery, particularly this Cora character as she's out of touch with her humanity and kind of like this raw carnivorous sexuality. Yeah, there are also um, some more poetic shots. One shot I really liked was when they're up on the Notre Dame. Yeah. And she loses her scarf and the mm. camera follows that as kind it like sort a, of blows on the wind towards the Paris. That's yeah, it's quite, like a green silk scarf or something. Yeah, mm. that's really beautifully shot. So there are some beautiful shots in this movie. I think it's worth viewing if you're into less expository <laughs> movies and don't mind a bit of cannibalism. Mm. Those scenes really are intense. At least I found it because I hadn't seen it for a while when I rewatched it now. And I was kind of thinking, how unpleasant is this? It is definitely unpleasant. It I think very well, intense, especially the way she sort of Corey plays with her victims. Yeah. that's probably what I found the most unpleasant. Mm. She sort of toys with their mm. well, like skin flaps and pokes her yeah. finger into the wound. And it's kind of silhouetted, so you don't see it very clearly. So the imagination yeah, is yeah. working stronger. Yeah, that was quite horrific, Although, actually. I almost found the other the scene where Shane is eating the maid. It's somehow physically more threatening. Her screams and her helplessness is somehow clearer. It's less kind of bloody and... It's more psychologically horrible because you sort of care about mm. Shane and you also care about mm. the maid because you've spent a lot more time yeah. with her in the movie. And kind of his reveal when he looks up and he's bloodied. It's intense, I think. Yeah. yeah. And also there's the power imbalance there, of mm. course, gender-wise yeah. uh, in the scene with Corey. It feels more like a rape thing. Yeah, it does feel a lot more rapey. Although he's, his impulse isn't necessarily sexual. Yeah. It's, Can you call it rape if your goal is to eat them? Uh, <laughs> well, there's definitely a sexual element, Oh, well, They are on the floor and they're kind of kissing and she's naked more or less. And, also implied uh, by the fact that he can't ejaculate during the sex scene previously. You know, actually, that's the one thing that I think works least well in this film. What? It's, he's in the bathroom and he's ejaculating <laughs> and there's just this jizz flying and it yeah. looks really fake. Yeah, it and It's does. kind of funny. It does. It's kind of funny. That's uh, the funniest scene actually in the yeah. movie. It's weird because the movie we discussed last time, mm. uh, it has a pretty good uh, jack-off scene. <laughs> but this scene doesn't work quite as well. This film also feels, even though it's from 2001, it feels very much placed in the 90s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Like he has this big bulky laptop and, you know, they don't have cellular phones at all. Yes, this just sort the of look a... of it and the font. Yeah. <laughs> in, in the beginning, it's almost laughably 90s. Yeah, I th uh, it looks like Comic Sans or yeah, something. something. I was thinking yeah. about it. It looks so sort of a school project in the yeah. 90s. Very generic in a way. And yeah. um... But then again, there's few things that are as much 90s as the early 2000s. Just like the mm. early 90s were very, very 80s in yeah, a way. it's true. These are just numbers. It's a transitional yeah, period. Definitely. Mm. And... Uh, Mm. It's funny. It does feel more dated than it perhaps should have felt. recommendations for us i recommend you go fuck yourself
Mm. Well, I certainly will. Thank you. <laughs> uh, no, yes, I do have a recommendation, actually. It's a book I'm reading at the moment. Mm-hmm. And it's very unpleasant because it deals with some extremely dark themes. It's called Highway of Tears by Jessica McDermott. And it's about uh, a string of murders that have taken place during uh, quite a long period of time. This is like a true crime? It's true crime, but it's it really deals with a lot of systematic racism in okay. Canada towards First Nations and Inuit and uh, other Native peoples. It's very interesting. So it deals with a lot of murders that have taken place on a long stretch of highway, mm-hmm. where there's uh, far and few between settlements mm-hmm. and very few modes of public transportation. Mm-hmm. Historically, it's almost been nothing. So there's been a lot of hitchhiking, and these First Nations uh, women often are alone and hitchhiking. And because of a lot of systematic problems in Canada, like the residential schooling, for instance, where they took uh, Native or First Nations children from their families mm. and brought them into these schools to get rid of their Native culture and bring them up as sort of the white person culture, has caused such devastating mm. uh, results generationally that it's caused a lot of uh, alcoholism and drug abuse and violence. And generally, a lot of these victims are very exposed to being raped you know and it's just the themes are really horrible but it's it's handled in a very uh, very good way and uh, i think it's a very important book so i would recommend it but it's not pleasant reading what was it called again a highway of tears by jessica mcdermott and she's like a a journalist she's a journalist yeah from canada so she's been following the case for a few years is it she has been dealing with other social justice issues mm. throughout the world. And yeah. then uh, lately, I think just during the maybe the last nine years, she's been following these cases and working with the families and stuff and interviewing them. So there's a lot of different fates throughout this book that it's kind of depressing, but mm. it's interesting. Yeah, that's horrible. Quite horrible. Do you have any recommendation, Thomas? I do. And it's a very famous painting. Is uh, it your painting? You, no, I didn't make it. Uh, <laughs> I wish I had. <laughs> if you don't recognize the name of the artist, you've definitely seen it. It's one of these paintings that's super iconic. It's called Saturn Devouring His Son by Francisco Goya. And this painting, it's from somewhere in between 1819 and 1823. And it's uh, originally a mural painting. It shows like this giant figure who looks at you quite startled. And it's dark all around him. And he's holding a mutilated body, which he's clearly been eating. And he's kind of naked and he looks kind of monstrous and caught in the act. And it's a very kind of um, intense moment. Oh, yeah. Um, and it's his son. Yeah. This is kind of like a proto-story. It goes through a lot of myths like the Greek or in this case, they're using the Roman names, Saturn, because uh, there's... Um, there's a foretelling that uh, his son will replace him. Yeah. So when his children are born, he, you know, murders them. In this case, he, he eats them as they're newly born. Correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't that painting part of a series of murals he did in his own house? Yeah. This is from the late period uh, when he's like in his 70s. He's moved into a new house. Uh, he's... The house, I think, is named after the person who lived there before, Quanta del Sorda, yeah. which translates to 
deaf man's villa. And he himself was going deaf at this time, so there's kind of a double thing. And he starts to paint um, these 14 murals known as the black paintings. I love these paintings. Uh, and they're not really meant for exhibition. Later they are taken down and placed in frames and exhibited. By that point they've been um, deteriorated quite a bit. Yeah, he just filled his house with these uh, really intense and... Quite uh, morbid, some of them. Yeah, morbid, dark paintings. And <laughs> there's, a, there's an interesting thing about this one. Um, apparently, an element that might have like faded away in, in, in Saturn, devouring his son, is like uh, an erect penis that he's standing there <laughs> eating him with an erect penis. Oh, my God. <laughs> Which makes it so much fun. That would have really added another <laughs> um, element of horrificness to it. Yeah, but it's deteriorated, so, so one isn't quite sure. It's, I mean, it's already very intense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But it's, it seems kind of crude mm-hmm. at the same time. It's very raw. Yeah. And I love yeah. the, the expression on Saren's face yeah. because it's it's almost sad. Like, yeah. why am I eating my own son? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, at, at this point, Goyo was thinking about a lot of things in terms of, you know, being old and being replaced by young people. And there's this situation in Spain where... A direct quote is something like the fatherland consuming its own children in wars and revolution. Like there's a lot of turmoil and um, he's obviously very conflicted. He's depicted some pretty horrific war scenes too, I believe. Yeah, 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 he's famous for those. He has a very varied career, but the name Goya kind of rings towards these more intense and uh, scary pictures. And this is, you know, there's not a lot of paintings that are genuinely scary but uh, this one is uh, it's such a striking image it's a, it's um, a really scary painting like the series of paintings he did yeah. in the house sort of has this otherworldly quality to it like the the sabbath picture with the with the goat horned uh, yeah. devil and stuff it's really grim shit yeah i mean he, he he'd survived two uh life-threatening illnesses at this point and obviously really concerned with his own mortality and it's quite embittered as far as i understand yeah and it seems quite idiosyncratic too in comparison to a lot of the art at the mm. time. Oh yeah, yeah, it's very its own thing. It feels much more modern, I it think. It seems extremely modern. Mm. It's reminiscent of, especially of the Saturn picture, mm. reminiscent of Francis Bacon almost. Mm. Definitely. The, the raw emotion of... And I think that's also to do with the influence it's had, that it's become kind of like a cultural icon. Yeah, mm. so you might not realize just how unique it was at the time, even mm. the, the Seinfeld effect, as yeah. it's called. Yeah, <laughs> like the, the flesh and the kind of like the the body and the skin—that's what you're looking at. Yeah, and uh, that's why I thought of it in terms of this film as well. I mean, cannibalism and mm. like the devouring of flesh—it's um, really one of the most striking images concerning this. Yeah, thematically, quite mm. closely linked to the goings on in this movie mm. for sure mm. i love how it seems almost a bit clumsy it's yeah. very raw and just yeah it's it's it has a rough edge yeah but it's precise at the same time yeah, the yeah. more you look you can look at it for a long time and you know for sure still, for sure um, delve into it yeah definitely yeah. go check that picture out yeah you've probably seen it yeah but study it yeah just look deep into saturn's eyes <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> really yeah. really yeah. just bask in the horrificness of the, of the scene so yeah i guess that's it for today yeah Next time, we will be talking about a documentary by Amy Berg. It's an American filmmaker. Uh, it's called Prophet's Prey. And, uh, yeah, it's about some really unpleasant things that happen yeah. in the real world. I've seen it, and it's it's horrible. A lot of horrible things happen in the real world. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now you can get in touch with us 
if you want at unpleasantmovies at protonmail.com and if you like you can write and review wherever you get this podcast and uh, the music is made by Umulium. does it have a name the song yeah it's called uh Mörk Fremtid, or Dark Future. <laughs> nice. <laughs> it's very suitable. Yeah. And uh, two musicians, uh, Sverre Ogor and Jus Garning. That's right. So, yeah, uh, until next time, just uh, take care of your family and yourself. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Don't eat anybody. Don't eat your son. Bye-bye.